Hello, this is Paul with the Divided Families podcast. Before I turn it over to Eugene for his conversation with Ken Liu, the guest on today's episode, I just wanted to share what I felt listening to their conversation, which just reminded me of what we are trying to do with this project, storytelling, and not just us telling the stories of others, but us trying to amplify the various voices of divided families and connecting these stories of family separation. So without further ado, here's a very intriguing, thoughtful conversation between Eugene and Ken. guest today as we kick things off. I'm here with a personal hero of mine, Ken Liu, a computer programmer turned corporate lawyer turned science fiction writer. Um, thanks so much for taking the time and I honestly like almost dropped my phone when uh, you responded to my email. So, Well, thank you very much, Eugene, for uh, having me on the show. Yeah, he's perhaps best known for translating the three-body problem. It's a Chinese sci-fi series by Xin Liu. It's about how humanity would react if we discovered an alien civilization on their way to conquer us, basically. I, like many others, discovered the novel through President Obama's book list, and after that, I went on to read The Paper Menagerie, which is the short story I recommended in our pilot episode, if you haven't listened to that already. Um, And I talk about how it captures the multifaceted nature of family separation. There's the first-hand issue of historical circumstances, and then there's the intergenerational echoes of that. So all of this happened a couple months ago at the end of 2019. I spent it largely immersed in your work. Um, yeah, I actually picked up the first copy of the first book of the Three Body Problem right before my first Chinese class, so it's all woven together. But I came, became a big fan of yours, and I'm also a big fan of not just your fiction, but also what you're doing for Chinese science fiction and writing and getting it on the map and so forth. So the timing of launching this podcast coincided nicely with the release of Ken's newest short story collection, The Hidden Girl. Um, it should be out by the time you're listening to this. And to be honest, after the initial shock factor that you had actually responded had worn off, I was a little bit curious, like, why would he want to do this? Like, you know, it's not sci- we're not a sci-fi podcast. But as soon as I started reading the short story collection, I realized, like, the concept of family and um, the importance of remembering history, things like that abound in almost all of your stories and the speculative sci-fi elements that you bring in force us to grapple with the what ifs of you know on the one hand the big picture refugee crisis in the future that we're going to have with climate change and uh, computerized consciousnesses and so forth and then on the other hand the really microscopic like human questions of how do we understand family if say your father is uploaded onto like a computer as a computerized consciousness Um, and also how can we how can technology also help us understand history and empathize with each other through things like VR. So I could go on and on about the collection, but I think I've talked enough. The first question that I wanted to ask you was, what does sci-fi mean to you? Just for listeners who might be thinking, like, I'm not into Star Wars or Star Trek, you know? Um, You know, science fiction is one of those genres that's super malleable. And I feel, um, as with any genre, the longer it exists, the more blurry the lines between the genre and the rest of literature grows. To me personally, I don't actually um, even think that I'm often writing sci-fi. My books are sometimes classified in sci-fi simply because they evince a worldview in which 
rationality is prized and that the, the overall feeling is um, one of hope. That is, it is in fact possible for human beings to improve themselves and, and to make the world a better place through knowledge and through scientific ways of viewing the world. But that doesn't necessarily make it sci-fi per se. Um, I, I, I hesitate to sort of classify my own work that way just because I have the problem with labels of all sorts. I don't enjoy classifying my work into any genre. I don't particularly enjoy talking about my own work through the lens of any specific genre. Um, I feel that if these genre labels help people discover and find uh, joy in my work, then that's awesome. But when I start out writing fiction, I don't think consciously about writing in the frame, in the framework or within the confines of a specific genre. So I don't often think about things that way. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Eugene, a lot of my stories are about uploaded consciousness. It's about the threat of artificial intelligence, the threat and opportunity, I suppose, as well, about artificial intelligence or about what it's like for humanity to be spread out among the stars and so on. These are superficially very sci-fi tropes. But I, I never think about these topics uh, specifically through the lens of sci-fi. To me, these are just human problems um, and human situations. And I want to write fiction that imagines what it's like to live life um, that's different uh, from the everyday life that we have to struggle through. And yeah, I think that people should, if you do get the collection, you should read it in order. Because a lot of the stories actually start with more, you know, non-sci-fi kind of situations. And then later on, it kind of gradually goes into more hardcore science fiction. I mean, I'm not a hardcore yeah, science fiction person. Yeah, I, I think so. that, that sounds fair. I mean, I, I often I think reviewers sometimes struggle with this, too. They, they try to describe my collection. They say, well, some of the stories are sort of sci-fi. Some of the stories are more fantasy. Some of the stories are magic realism. Some of the stories are just historical. Um, it's, it's hard to say what Ken is actually doing. I think at one point, some reviewer actually said that the problem with Ken is that his fantasy reads like sci-fi and his sci-fi reads like fantasy. I think that was intended as some sort of insult, but I actually really enjoyed it because I think that's a great description of what I do. I don't particularly care about labels, as I mentioned earlier. And in fact, a lot of my work is about defying and transgressing labels. So the fact that my fiction can be hard to pin down is to me um, a strength rather than um, a problem. Mm -hmm, definitely. I'm not the biggest sci-fi fan, but I am interested in these larger questions of how technology is going to be changing personal lives and civilization as a whole. And I think a lot of other people listening to this podcast, you know, just the average person is interested in the questions that come up in things like Black Mirror. So I think that the genre blending is really what allows your work to be appealing to a lot of different audiences. So now turning to the actual story collection, the first story is called Ghost Days, and it was one of my favorites and probably the first one that I would recommend for listeners of this podcast. It's also online. I've shared it with a couple of friends already. Um, cool. And it has to do with the intergenerational grappling with a family, a Chinese-American family, and it also talks about the importance of remembering our past. I have a little quote to share, and then I'd like to get your thoughts on that. So don't worry too much about what my dad says, she said. He froze. You're angry, she said. What do you know about, he said. She's a princess. She belongs. You can't control what others think, she said. But you can always decide for yourself if you belong. He said nothing, trying to comprehend the rage in himself. I am not my father, she said, and you're not your parents. Family is a story that is told to you, but the story that matters the most, you must tell yourself. 
he realized that this was the thing about America that he loved the most. The utter faith that family did not matter, that the past was but a story. Even a story that started as a lie, a fib, could become authentic, could become a life that was real. Could you speak a little bit to what went into this passage in terms of like your own experience and also um, as someone who has grown up in the United States and also, uh, I think you've grown up in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. And also, what do you mean by family being a story? So one of my recurring themes is the idea of our lives being shaped by narratives and by stories. Um, so the idea is that we, we we have a very complicated relationship to narratives. Uh, my, my feeling is that as a species, we're sort of wired to understand the world only through stories. Without stories, we actually can't make sense of the world at all. And so this functions at the level of individuals um, and families and professions, cities, nations. All of us need to have a story to explain who we are, where we come from, who, how we're different from others who have lived on this planet or who are sharing the planet with us and, and what gives us a claim uh, to our individuality. The reality is, you know, life is really just one random event after another. There's no real plot to it. There's no, there's no plot to life. There's no character arc to your own life. There's no cause and effect for most of the, the important things that happen to you. You know, the way you meet the person who will end up becoming your spouse or the way you end up choosing the profession that you pursue. Tons of coincidences and all sorts of random uh, encounters lead to these decisions. But that's, we, we can't really understand life in that way. That's not the way we want to understand. We can't function that way. We have to go back and retroactively construct a plot of our own lives to explain how these things shaped us and how we got to where we are. So to me, that's, that's sort of the critical part of it. You, you have to accept the fact that much of your own story about your own life is just that, a story. It's not necessarily the same thing as the unvarnished facts. But maybe it's actually not possible to really know the universe through fact alone. You, you, you cannot understand your own life's journey as a series of coincidences. It's just not a um, not a very human way to to understand your own life. Uh, you have to attribute causes to effects and to make up arcs about how things you encounter in your life end up shaping your journey to to get to where you are. And that's not a bad thing because when you have a story to guide your journey, you also have a purpose. You also have a way to craft. Um, your your future uh, journey in the direction that feels meaningful and truthful to you. The quote that you were reading actually is is quite complicated because it superficially seems to suggest that suggest that history doesn't matter and and that um, your your family is irrelevant. That you can just sort of craft your own story the way you want to. But if you read the whole story and put that quote in context, um, you sort of realize that that's actually not true. Um, that's not a that's not a belief that any of the characters in the story actually end up finding to be meaningful. The truth is always much more nuanced. You, you, your life isn't dictated by your history, but at the same time, you're not starting from a blank page. It's a complicated interplay between the stories that you learn, stories other people tell you, and the story that you're going to have to tell for yourself. It's sort of like the story of America. 
you know, a lot of our contemporary struggles are over this. You know, um, what is the story of America? How much of the story we've been told is true? Uh, a lot of our politics is over this debate over whether the American dream is in fact a true story for everyone or a story reserved for the few. And then in either case, who gets to tell the story of America in the future and, and who gets to claim to be part of the story? Um, that's, that's really what these fights are about. They're fights about what story feels true and what story should be true. Um, and, and so if you think stories don't matter, then you have very little understanding of how human nature works. Our most important, sacred, and emotional debates are all about stories. Our politics is all over what story is true. Mm -hmm. I talked a little bit about how, and I don't know who said this, maybe you do, but like the quote that humans are storytelling creatures, basically what you had just talked about, but just to dig a little bit into why that is, and you kind of explain a little bit about why, but do you think that is, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, do you think that might be because stories simplify information? Like we can't actually comprehend, you know, we can't take in all of the random things that happen in our life and um, just keep it in our brains. Is um, it because stories are... Yeah, I I don't know if there's, a, there's a, um, an explanation for that. I mean, a maybe... A biological thing? Yeah, maybe uh, folks who study cognition and the way um, our mind um, works can can speak to that. I, I think a lot of times um, what happens is that we don't derive meaning really from from facts per se, because we're, I don't know, maybe this is because um, emotions evolve to help us survive or, or, or something related to that. I, I, I don't think we really know the world or understand the world in a simplistic way through reason alone. It's just that's not a terribly meaningful way for us as human beings to understand the world. We don't, you know, even something as simple as the theory of evolution, it's 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 fascinating to sort of see people struggle with it because it's very, very, very hard to explain the theory of evolution to people in a way to have people come away come away with understanding that this is essentially a random process. It's driven by randomness and it's permeated by randomness. There's no teleology to it. But when we talk about evolution, we're always falling into the trap of talking about as um, having a purpose, having a goal. You know, the goal is about more intelligence. It's about more complexity. It's about we, we, we seem to think that survival of the fittest is some kind of story that needs to be told, it has, a, has, a, has a plot to it, uh, a, a kind of end that everything is reaching towards. I, I think that leads to a lot of the misunderstandings about evolution, and, and we just seem to be unable to understand it for what it is, an essentially random process. But I think that's true of so many other things um, in life. We, 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 we don't, we cannot accept the patternlessness uh, and the randomness of much of life. We just have to find a reason to it. And as I say again and again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the point isn't that stories are always misleading or bad. Stories are, in fact, extremely important. They, they provide an organizing principle. They're not simplifying. Um, good stories are, in fact, uh, they add complications to everything. It's very simple to sort of see the world as us versus them. Um, you know, just you, you pick a group that you want to be with and you say, this is it. Good for the group. Uh, good for my group. Good. Um, not good for my group. Bad. 
but that's a very simplistic way of viewing the world. Um, stories help us see the world through much more complicated and nuanced ways, and and I think generally for the better.、Mm. And as you were speaking before, I was thinking about the relationship between storytelling and power, as you had mentioned a little bit, and also about the American story and how we are, you know, in the middle of arguing about what that story is, and whoever kind of. Wins that argument temporarily will be the one in charge of dictating that story for a lot of people who will just get that in history classes and whatnot. But the one line in this section that I just read, where it says, "You know, family is a story that's told to you, but the story that matters the most, you must tell yourself." Was your intention there to kind of get into wresting power away in these kinds of storytelling situations, where it's not just you know what your parents told you? You can choose、um, your own history and how you understand yourself. In this, yeah, I, I think that's one way to understand. I, although I don't think it's、uh, it's that simple. I think、um, I, I think the simplistic way to view it is that this is about the typical sort of you know immigrant、uh, experience about how you know、uh, your parents tell you one way and that's that's turns out to be wrong and you need to sort of、uh, rebel against that. That's that's actually not. I, I think that's that's the least interesting way to understand it. I think the the much more interesting way to understand it is that family in this case is really just one instance of the overall power. You know, it's it's sort of like there are all sorts of powers telling you what the right thing to do is and what the more、uh, respected way of doing something is, or you know, this is the way to be a quote unquote true American, etc. And you have to. Sort of realize that all these stories are told you by those already in power, and、uh, if if you're the sort of person who's content with the distribution of power and just accepted, then the stories may seem very comforting. But if you're not, then the stories do not seem very comforting at all. Part of the one of the themes that I work a lot in my fiction is the idea of. Internalized racism and colonialism,、uh, and how to interrogate、um, all these unquestioned assumptions about what it means to have individualism, what it means to have、uh, an American identity, when what it means to 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 declare certain things to be un-American, and and who gets to make those kind of declarations, and and why it is that some people feel that they need to side with. Those in power against their own parents or their own communities, or those who happen to have to be less fortunate than they are, you know, pick your particular social justice cause and to to side with those in power.、Um, and I think it's very interesting to look deeper into that and and figure out what is the right, what is the more meaningful way, I guess, to live a life.、Um, my feeling has always been that. Living a meaningful life essentially means that you compose a self-narrative of your own life that gives you meaning and empowers you.、Uh, as I mentioned earlier, all of us spend our entire lives essentially composing epic fantasies of ourselves, with ourselves as the protagonists. And if that's the case, then I want to tell stories. For people to inspire them to have narrative strategies for for their own lives, in which they get to go on these epic journeys, featuring centering themselves、um, as the center of the struggle, and not merely as supporting characters in someone else's story. I, I think that is very important,、uh, and I feel a lot of our、uh, contemporary movements and, and politics are about that.、Mm, I think I like where we're going with storytelling and power and the relationship. Especially as we look forward to a lot of interviews and you know hearing stories from a lot of different people on this podcast. Just to go off of what you were saying, there are some stories I can't remember which ones, but there are some stories that talk about 
reality and the sensations that we have as a computerized consciousness are not the same as you know actually touching things and feeling things in real life mm-hmm. if i'm to relate that to storytelling and you said like living a meaningful life is giving yourself a narrative that gives you meaning but like how would you respond to the claim that stories are not quote-unquote real <laughs> like they're made up right well yeah so um i i think the difference that i'm trying to point out here is the stories that are are meaningful are um, always true, and anything worth um, really fighting for are you know in that sense made up. There, there's you're not gonna go find some. Mm, you, you can't find in nature, I guess, some sort of factual basis uh, for why freedom is good or why democracy is relevant. I mean, these are just stories. I mean, you know, it's sort of like. You know, I trained as a lawyer, so I, I think about this a lot. I think a lot of times the way we talk about constitutionalism and the Constitution is very flawed. People seem to think that the Constitution is about a piece of paper with some words on it. That, that's not what it's about. The, the, the really relevant Constitution for us, as it is for many other nations around the world, is the story around the Constitution. A Constitution is not just a bunch of words and institutions. It's, it's about belief in a shared myth of how this is who we are and that this is a system that we've chosen that we believe governs the best. And as soon as you lose faith in that mythology, in that story, the most perfect constitution won't matter. I mean, there are plenty of countries in the world that have on paper constitutions much more refined and better, quote unquote, than ours. But they're not functioning democracies at all. And in fact, they don't their constitution is just pieces of paper, literally, with um, no one believing uh, a thing they say. And ours, it's a, it's a very old constitution. In fact, it's very ambiguous and unclear in many places. What keeps it functioning is not because of all the hard work of the lawyers, even though that is important. Far more important is the abiding faith all of us have in it. And that faith has to be renewed generation after generation, year after year act after act. Every time we participate in an election and every time we participate in a debate or in a protest, we are, in fact, through our actions, making that constitution come alive. We, by performing these acts, make the story true and turn it and refresh it and bring it into new directions. So, you know, to me, a living story is actually the most important part of a people's soul. When that story is no longer alive, when that story ceases to have uh, the power to inspire, uh, to be a mythology that everyone believes in, that's when a nation truly is in trouble. So to your original question about, you know, what is the response? The response is, if you are the sort of person who can't see that the most important things in life are all quote-unquote, not real, then there's not a whole lot of hope (laughs) to to talk about it because Mm -hmm. you sort of have missed the point. Mm, Yeah, I think that's really interesting and also not enough time to think about it now, but in relation to, you know, if we were to be computerized and have expanded our minds and consciousnesses and abilities, what would happen? Um, Right. I mean, related to that is the whole thing about um, embedded cognition. Another recurring thing in my work is the idea that um, we don't just think with our minds, that thinking isn't actually just about weighing pros and cons and evaluating facts and and trying to run them through some algorithm, running neurons uh, and and trying to come to a conclusion about the world. I I don't think that's actually the most interesting or relevant part about thinking. A lot of my fiction is about how important thinking, how much 
of our cognition, how much our human um, humanity, for lack of a better word, is actually derived from our bodies and our relationship to the world, to the physical world as mm-hmm. it is. You know, there there have been a lot of um, studies showing that things like the microbiome in our um, intestinal tracts or neuron clusters outside of the brain or just other sensory parts of our bodies actually play a huge role um, in the way we think. Uh, we literally think with our bodies in a way that isn't just a disembodied uh, brain floating in a jar. That's not actually who we are. We, we, we really are embodied and we actually think with every part of our bodies in a way that I think has been underappreciated. So a lot of my stories that deal with uploaded consciousness tries to explore that idea and think about just how important it is that we have bodies, that we were not evolved as disembodied consciousness running on any kind of arbitrary hardware. We evolved in a specific kind of body and that our minds are inextricably tied to that body and to to our experience, to our scale of experience the world, to our scale of experiencing time, to the kind of wavelength that we can sense with our eyes and the kind of sounds that we can hear with our ears and how just very much tied to that physical presence our mind really is. It's a, it's a very, I push very hard against the dualism of traditional philosophy of treating the mind and the body as two entirely separate things. I, I really think very, we would be much better off when we appreciate and acknowledge how embodied we are. And so that leads to the interesting question of, you know, what does it mean to have artificial intelligence that are evolved for a very different kind of body or for no body at all? How, how do we achieve empathy and understanding with a mind or a consciousness if we get to that point that wasn't evolved to, to be tied specifically to a body, to a consciousness that doesn't think that way? I think these are all questions that are, to me, very deeply interesting. And I actually haven't seen a huge amount of exploration into it. And I, I love to see more serious thinking and a dialogue. Um, about what that means. Mm-hmm. I have some more to talk about that later on in the conversation, but for now, just to come back to the second story, Maxwell's Demon. Um, it's about Japanese internment, and we'll have a few episodes about this subject in the future, but uh, I just wanted to read another short passage and then similarly uh, bounce off some thoughts from you. So this is from Maxwell's Demon. Takako, imagine the power of the bomb that our spirits would help make. Would it be brighter than the sun? Would it bathe a whole city in a sea of fire? Would it create thousands, millions, more screaming spirits who will never, ever be able to go home? She paused. Was she a killer? If she did nothing, people would die. No matter what she did, people would die. She closed her eyes and thought about her family. She hoped that they were not having too rough a time of it. Her brother was the problematic one. He brooded and was so angry all the time. She imagined the doors of the camp at Tule Lake opening and everyone bouncing out like high-energy molecules. The war is over. I just really like the way that the attention kind of moves from this huge macroscopic, you know, geopolitical situation and her ascribing herself like, is this my fault? Do I have any kind of responsibility for this? And then it moves into like, wait a minute, no matter what I did, I don't really have a choice. Like I'm just one tiny, tiny, tiny person in this huge situation. And then it moves from that into what about my family? And I thought that that was interesting to talk about for this podcast. How does family relate to these larger geopolitical circumstances? Why is it so salient and it is sometimes an oversimplification to say hey like 
my family is the most important thing, right? Like this is precious because it is precious. Regardless of the way that it's oversimpl- like an oversimplification, we still do that. And I don't really know where I'm going with that thought, but I was just kind of curious as to your experience. Uh, why, why did you choose Japanese internment for this? And then also, yeah, what kind of went into this uh, piece? Well, you know, you know, I was, uh, as I mentioned, I trained as a lawyer. So when you study the law, uh, the period... The constitutional crisis, really, that surrounded uh, the internment, the Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans in the U.S. during World War II, um, is always a very important episode, uh, and you know, not a particularly proud moment for our country. But the issue that I wanted to focus on uh, in this particular story is actually probably less legally interesting, but much more interesting for us in the modern world. Um, I, I, I feel that what I'm trying to get at. Um, in that story is an issue that we don't talk about a lot, which is the way modernity and modern communication platforms tries to extract us or separate us from our local embedded identities into a more abstract global identities and, and what that really means. I, I think it's a very dangerous trend for our politics to always become more nationalized and then internationalized, for community standards and local control to be demonized and to push everything towards the idea of every conflict is Manichaean and national, uh, and, and that our identities as specific individuals embedded in specific communities don't matter nearly as much as much larger group identities that cross geographical boundaries and are nationalized. I, I think those kind of trends are extremely dangerous because once you stop caring about specific things in your local community um, and in your day-to-day life and become obsessed with events across the globe or in distant capitals that you have no control over, you have actually exposed yourself to an increasing sense of powerlessness. And in fact, it's exactly what those in power want you to feel. By making it seem as if what happens in distant capitals is more important than what happens to your house and and in your town, in your city, in your community, it's to induce in all of us a kind of learned helplessness. Um, You know, I think all of us have experienced this sense of being on Twitter or some sort of other social media platform, and you're just bombarded by trolls from thousands of miles away who don't know you at all, but who feel perfectly joyful to unleash their venom on you. Uh, and, And when everything going through your feed is about horrors, the horrors of globalization and the kind of atrocities and uh, injustices committed thousands of miles away over which you have no control and cannot control. What it does, as you are exposed to this day after day, is a learned sense of helplessness, that you cannot maintain an individual identity, that you're in fact only able to find some measure of identity by joining some movement and subsuming yourself into a larger abstract imagined community. Um, it's, it explains the rise of nationalism, the rise of so many other forces that have torn our world apart. Um, and so I feel that the way to understand some of my stories, if, if you're interested in the way I was thinking about them, is this skepticism towards international and national and imagined communities uh, and, and to focus much more on the specific, the individual, 
the the realm that's human and within your control. So I talk a lot about families, uh, not because somehow families are natural or you know to be assumed to be the repository of wisdom or truth, but because family is usually a, lo- a locus where you can have direct influence on what happens. It's, it's where you get to have the most control over the story you want to tell. And family does not mean related by blood. It actually, in my formulation, is much more about choice, about the families you choose rather than the family that you're born into. And I think that, to me, is a much more localist and, and embodied and personal sense of individuality, of political um, empowerment, of identity-based Um, Yeah, that's a lot to take in at once. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that story did make me think a lot about also how the way family is also used as leverage. Mm -hmm. That's how the story begins. And also how I guess what you're uh, speaking to in terms of larger geopolitical forces, like they capitalize on, you know, the thing that you have control over the family. Did you have anything to add on that subject in terms of using family as a form of leverage. Or... Right. I mean, you know, family, whether you love yours or don't, they there's no question that they hold an enormous amount of emotional power over us. You know, a lot of us are perfectly rational, accomplished individuals. But if you put us in the same room with our parents, we revert back to patterns of our childhood and we become extremely volatile or, you know, there are small things that can set us off from our parents or siblings, people who grew up with us in a way that strangers can never do. And and it's worth interrogating into that and why that is. And and to not view it as a weakness, but to view it as a source of strength. Because as I mentioned earlier, I don't think the goal is to make humans more like robots. The the goal is to accept the fact that we are humans and to accept our frailty and to celebrate the fact that we are humans, uh, that we're very emotional and that emotions are, um, and these very deeply embedded patterns of behavior that we learn from families are, in fact, an important part of who we are and, and part of our overall diversity. We, we shouldn't all subscribe to some kind of abstract idea about what it's like to love someone, to express our love in a certain way. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that I try to do a lot in my fiction is to point out that many of these notions of what is the acceptable way to express love to a child or to a parent and what is the you know considered the quote-unquote healthy way to have a family and to live family dynamics from the mainstream are actually not universal at all they're deeply matched to the patterns of one dominant group and to say that these are universal um, is the source of a lot of the internalized racism that minority families and immigrant families especially experience and i i feel that if there's one thing my fiction can do it's to show that there are a thousand ways to say i love you um, in my family and not all of them look the same um, as as those dominant voices would want you to believe. At the same time, there are also a thousand ways to hurt someone in a family. And not all of them, again, are the same as those in the dominant group can identify. And in order to be truly who we are and to seize control of our own narrative, we have to be able to own that and and to um, evaluate our own life's journey and our own family stories with a critical but empathetic eye and not an eye 
that's filtered or tinged through a story, you know, as I as my recurring theme is through a story or a dominant gaze that's not our own. Mm, this is also a very good segue into the next story that I want to talk about. That made me think a lot about that one scene in the story that we're just going to talk about next, which is Byzantine empathy. Very nice segue from Maxwell's demon. It has to do with cryptocurrency, virtual reality, refugee crises, nonprofits, and two almost allegorical characters. They're like opposites of each other. One is uh, the you know heart, the other one is the mind. And nicely summarized. Yeah, thanks. And as you were speaking about how not all of our experiences are the same, and reaching across those divisions, I was reminded of that one scene in the short story. Minor spoiler, but basically the mind character, she says, oh, you only feel that way because they look like you. Like, these are people who are the same as you. So, um, and I think you wrote a line in there, something like she thought that that was a winning argument, like a very convincing explanation. And I guess that was just something that I was thinking about as you were speaking. But going into a short snippet from the story, yeah, this is a conversation towards the end. So uh, we'll see how it unfolds. Because I haven't seen all the acts of brutality committed by the Russians against the Chechen people, she said. To reward those who evoke empathy is the same as punishing those who have been prevented from doing so. Looking at this won't be objective. There's always the need for more context with Sophia, for the big picture. But I've learned over the years that rationality with her, as with many, is just a matter of rationalization. She wants a picture just big enough to justify what her government does. She needs to understand just enough to be able to reason that what America wants is also what anyone rational in the world wants. I understand how she thinks, but she doesn't understand how I think. I understand her language, but she doesn't understand mine, or care to. That's how power works in this world. This story and this part made me think a lot about, the reason I underlined it a lot is because it made me think about this project. Because at first glance, when we started this project, it's just like, hey, family separation, hey, that's a bad thing. We should have empathy. It elicits like an emotional response. And then as we kind of started talking and discussing like where we, where we want this project to go, it became more complicated in terms of rationalizing what we're actually doing, what we can do, how are these things are related and things like that. So it really made me think about what we're doing. And I think you do kind of end the story. And I, I don't want you to pick either side because I think that's an unfair tipping of the scales, obviously. But it does kind of end with a ellipsis, like dot, dot, dot. Like we don't really know, you know, what the actual answer is. And I think that's the intention. But is that just a struggle that you go through every day? Does everybody go through that same struggle? Well, you know, I think we, we all have to deal with it. It's, a, it's you know, your, your standard. That the simplifying way to uh, talk about this is, you know, it's Kirk versus Spock. It's, uh, it's reason versus emotion, right? It's, um, it's, do, you, do you try to, quote unquote, do the right thing by analyzing the situation to figure out what is the greatest good for the greatest number of people? Or do you just go by emotional instinct and then say, you know, I feel empathy and I feel injustice has been committed. I'm going to try to do what I can to right the injustice. And, and you know, I, I think um, you're, you're right. My answer is I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure there is a simple answer as to which of those is right. And, and sometimes the two are not in conflict and sometimes they are. But I, I just, I do want us to sort of think about ethics and about uh, what the right thing to do, quote unquote, not in very abstract ways, but but in practical, pragmatic and concrete ways. Here's one thing I will say. I, I don't really think a lot of times when we marshal reason in debates, we are in fact doing that. I, I think a lot of times the appearance of rationality is, is really just rationalization. I, I really do think we in the modern world, especially do this so much more than um, than we're willing to acknowledge. Not necessarily more than the ancients ever did, I suppose, because 
it seems like hypocrisy has no uh, is, is not a modern invention. But I, I think because we are as a society, we're so focused on the idea that rationality and and having good reasons to do something is enough to justify doing something. And, and we're so focused on providing good justifications. We are very blind to the limits of that kind of rational thinking. A lot of times when what appears to be, you know, perfectly well-intentioned, good motivations for making decisions turn out to be conducted under false premises or very arrogant assumptions about what the people who are most affected, who have to pay for the consequences of our decisions, actually want. You know, I'm thinking of a lot of our wars of choice by America in the modern world. Part of the consequences of being a great empire is that you're going to do things that will hurt a lot of people, even if you think you're doing them for the best of reasons. And we are, I feel, many of us are unwilling to acknowledge that a democratic empire has certain faults that are deeply troubling, namely that anybody who is not an American don't get a say in what America does. So we are very often willing to accept as gospel truth that whatever is approved by the American public is necessarily good for the rest of the world. But when our actions affect people who have no representation in our government and who have no influence or say over what happens to them, but nonetheless have to bear the cost of our imperial adventures, that's a very, very complicated and difficult position to be in because everything we do is legitimated by our own democratic system. And nonetheless, the system does not represent the voices of anybody who is not already part of it. It's very easy to fall into this very arrogant position where we get to decide what is good for the world. Uh, and, and anybody who disagrees with us, we deem um, a force of irrationality of to be disregarded without having to listen to them. And I, I seem to sense an increasing move among our American elites to move towards that position. Uh, and I, I'm very troubled by it. But that may be an inevitable consequence of having an empire that's democratic, because democracy has a way of legitimating actions in a way that autocracies can never do. All of us are also, at the same time, complicit in those terrible things done and committed in our name. I don't have a solution for any of these problems. I, I just want us to think about it. And, you know, in some way, it reflects the powerlessness all of us feel living in the modern world when you're a citizen in a great democracy like this. National politics oftentimes is completely outside of your control because, you know, it seems to be seized by very extreme individuals who, who somehow are able to just exploit the polarization of society in a way to further policies that if you ask each of us on a one-by-one -one basis, none of us would approve. We somehow find ourselves in this position as citizens having to approve of things done in our name that we don't, in fact, agree with. These are difficult things to, to, to struggle against, to, to work with. And I, I don't have solutions for any of it other than we need to think more deeply about what it means to do the right thing and to do justice. And again, my refrain is to try to focus on things that we can control, to focus on the local, the community, and to be able to feel a sense of connectedness with the very causes we're fighting for, and to hope that this kind of local action can percolate up 
um, into a transformation at the national level. Yeah, I think that captures a lot of the sentiment going on literally right now as we record this in terms of America's institutions and whatnot. And I think as you were speaking about the way that democracy justifies itself, because we are all, you know, part of the decision makers, the huge frustration, obviously, is that we don't feel like we're... Like, exactly. Like, it's, it's not... It's a huge yeah, it's, like, it's not my fault. Right. The, these things are justified in our name, and yet we are not directly in control of any of it. We're sort of, you know, hostages of our own institutions. Um, and it's, a, it's an incredibly powerless feeling that, that we experience. Mm-hmm. And as you spoke about making the change that we can locally, um, that is kind of the challenge in that story is I have my roommate who's totally the opposite of me. How am I going to convince her? Uh And they don't really find a way. No. Can they find a way? We don't really know, right? So um, in that sense, it adds to kind of another sense of powerlessness. Like if two people are so fundamentally different, is it just based on, you know, like 51%? It's a real challenge, right? Because we do have to live with people who fundamentally disagree with us, but who are fellow citizens. And it seems to me that increasingly um, we find it hard or impossible to live that way. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, the solution is some sort of, sort of kumbaya come together moment and then just mm-hmm. all believe in the story that has been discredited. But what is the answer? I mean, we are, in fact, fellow citizens with people we fundamentally disagree with. How do we live with them in a way that we can accept? It cannot possibly always be, I win, you lose, and you win, I lose. It cannot possibly be the case that the answer is always to come to some sort of both sides, middle compromise that doesn't serve any kind of justice. So what are the alternatives? I, I, I really don't know. And like you say, it's, uh, this is the question facing us at this moment. Mm-hmm. So I have two questions left. One ties very well to the arrogance that you spoke of of America. But I think also my question is related to the arrogance of coastal elites, of which probably <laughs> most people... The two people um, making this podcast are coastal elites. I absolutely. live on opposite sides. <laughs> and most of our listeners are probably coastal elites because those are our friends, right? The ones who support us in the beginning. So um, this question is derived from this one passage from Dispatches from the Cradle. It's about in the future, climate change has you know, taken over the world with water. And yeah, this line, this short paragraph made me think it was pointed directly at me. So hopefully uh, maybe others will feel the same way. Many have accused her of encouraging refugee tourism instead of looking for real solutions, and some claim that she is merely engaging in the timeless practice of intellectuals from privileged societies visiting those less fortunate and purporting to speak for her subjects by, quote-unquote, discovering romanticized pseudo-wisdom attributed to them. Yeah, I just felt like, am I doing that? Do I always do that? You know, like, as somebody who... I mean, I've written for different publications interviewing particular people. We're doing this podcast right now, interviewing victims of family separation, et cetera. And it's like, in one sense, and we talk about this in our pilot where Paul says, I asked Paul, like, what drives you to do, like, good things? Because he's very proactive in doing philanthropy and all of this, like, good stuff. And he's like, oh, I want to pay back, like, the privilege that I have. And that's a very similar sentiment that I'm sure most coastal elites share. Like, I have the ability to do this, so I can. And... In another interview that we did, which will be released later, we talk a little bit about how those without power can't even tell their stories. They don't have time to do this, right? So I guess the general question related to all of this is just, how do you deal with that? Especially, and I think also the interesting question for you personally is, you know, you're a computer programmer, lawyer. These are both two professions that I see a lot of my friends going into. Mm -hmm. I myself also applying to law school now. So um, a lot of my friends are 
going into it or some of them are like computer programmers who say this I went into this to change the world. It's not enough. I'm going to go to law school or like some lawyers are yeah. like, this isn't enough. I'm going to go get my PhD in something and I'm just going to continue climbing the ladder, hoping to change something. So you, interestingly, decided to write stories, right? Instead of these two things that people, many people slave away many hours studying on exams and whatnot to achieve these professions. How do you deal with this as <laughs> somebody who can uh, look at it from, you know, all three different perspectives? You know, I, uh, I spent many years um, as a technologist and, and a programmer, and I actually love that life very much. Um, I, I think one of the things that's sometimes misunderstood about people who are passionate about technology is the idea that they just want to make money. Maybe some are like that, but I don't think most of the programmers I know and technologists I know are, in fact, motivated solely by money. I mean, of course, they want some money. Who doesn't? But I think what really drives them beyond a certain point is truly this desire to change the world. It's not something that you can measure tangibly, but the idea that you can, in fact, make a dent in the universe, as uh, Steve Jobs put it, um, really is a myth that moves a huge number of technologists and, and also uh, lawyers, too. I think a lot of folks going to the law Again, not solely motivated by the idea of stability and good income, but also by the idea that they can make a difference in the world, that they actually can change things for the better. What is ironic, of course, is how these two professions have been corrupted by our wonderful late capitalist society. The fact that some of the most brilliant minds in our society have been convinced that they can change the world for the better, essentially by figuring out ways to sell more ads for Silicon Valley corporations is uh, one of the great cons we committed in the last few decades. The fact that every year, so many great, brilliant students graduate from college believe that they should go work for one of these tech giants and, and help them sell more ads. And to believe, actually, um, in a, in a non-ironic way, that they really are there to make a difference, to make people's lives better, um, is very ironic. Uh, and same thing with lawyers. Um, you, you, you get tons of folks who tell themselves that they're just doing the corporate law thing for a few years until they can go and do their public interest work. Uh, and some do, but most don't. And uh, it is very, very interesting to me that the ideals, the stories about these professions that we tell ourselves diverge so much from the reality of it. But back to your earlier point about, you know, privilege and, and trying to speak for, quote unquote, those who can't tell their own stories. Uh, I, I think a lot of us probably go through a phase where we feel like the best way to use our privileged position is to, in fact, go and tell the stories of folks who can't tell their own stories. But as we grow older and, and or just have more experience, period, at least my, my perspective on this has changed. Um, I, I think there's a huge difference between trying to tell someone else's story versus amplifying the voices of those telling their own stories who are, not, who are otherwise ignored. Um, I, I think that's a huge difference and, and, in fact, one that should guide us in a lot of what we do. I try, you know, I'm a fiction writer. I don't, in fact, I'm not doing reportage, but I'm very conscious of, of the difference between the two. And I try as much as possible to not take someone else's story and claim it for my own uh, and to try to derive benefit from that. And so, you know, uh, for example, one thing I noticed very early on was that because my work is often classified in sci-fi fantasy and a lot of my literary appearances are related to that genre label, I noticed that 
the market for sci-fi in the U.S. and the U.K., for example, is very much dominated by English works or works originally composed in English, and especially in the U.S. and the U.K., and not even from other English-speaking countries, and certainly not from fiction written in other languages in the first place. And so, one of the things I wanted to try to do a little bit is, you know, because I have a very privileged position of being an American writer in English, whether I could do something to change that a little bit, and. The way I went about it is, you know, I, I don't do the thing that some writers do, which is to, even though they're privileged Americans, they believe that they're doing something edgy by trying to set their story in Africa or Asia or whatever, and, and trying to tell the stories of dystopians from, you know, elsewhere. I, I think that kind of storytelling can be very dangerous because you're presuming to speak for folks, and you're presuming to essentially. Use dystopian visions of other parts of the world to make us feel better. That is, you know, no matter how bad things here are, not as bad as it is in X fill in the blanks.、Mm-hmm. And I wanted to not do that, so I tried to do what I could by translating some of my Chinese friends who are also science fiction writers, and to have them speak for themselves, to have their own stories be. Heard. I'm not sure that effort is entirely successful because what I've learned,、uh, much to my disappointment and amazement, is that even when works are translated into English and and they are in fact very beautiful and unique on their own, people insist on interpreting these works by collectivizing them. You know, so one of my friends is never. My friends are never interpreted as say, you know, this is a Chen Qiufan story, this is a Xia Jia story, this is a, a story only Gu Shi could have told. Instead, what people do is they call it a Chinese story. They call it, you know, an example of Chinese sci-fi, as though the fact that all the writers are writing in Chinese or come from China is inherently more important than the individual stories themselves or the individual. Artistry or belief of the authors themselves. It's ironic that you know I'm trying to insist on the individualism of the writers here when Western readers sometimes appear to be only interested in collectivism. So it sort of flips the usual collectivism individualism narrative upside down. And、uh, so to me, the work that I was doing was valuable because I was trying to amplify voices that otherwise would not be heard. But I wasn't taking over their stories. I, I was just. Trying to amplify their voices and letting them speak for themselves, and I feel like that's the ethical thing to do. You know, if you're a journalist or a podcaster, if you're not taking someone's story and telling it for them, but instead just inviting them to tell the story themselves and to give them a platform to speak, that to me is the ethical thing to do, and and much more、uh, a much. Better way of using your privilege,、mm. and just to bring things full circle, I think that's also the importance of studying stories, like how stud- stories work. Because I guess for a podcast, I'm just recording everything at once, so you know there's not that much editing that happens. But for like a journalism piece or something like that, where you have to edit things out and make choices, and I'm sure that's you're familiar with that as a translator. But if you are aware of how stories work and how you know people might want to be represented,、um, I think that's another huge pro for learning stories. So. Yeah, the last question that I had is: I read your feature in New York Times Magazine like last month, a couple months ago,、um, and it kind of talks about your upbringing. And I thought about, oh, like how does that inform his thoughts on family? Because it's such a prominent theme. And in the acknowledgments for the short story collection,、um, the new short story collection, you write, "Thank you to my family." The last line is, "Thank you to my family who makes all this worthwhile." So,、uh, just for the last question, what does family mean to you? In terms, like it can be in terms of your upbringing or just you know any 
kind of form. Yeah. yeah, you know, I I think, you know, to me, family is so important. Um, you know, I was brought up by my grandparents and my grandmother's views about storytelling and the way she encouraged me to tell stories, just that has had such a deep influence on me. Um, and, and one of the great things about my grandmother was that she never sort of told me that, you know, this is the this is the way you ought to live your life. Rather, she tried to teach me values by living stories for me. Uh, sorry, by by telling stories that embody those values. So rather than saying, you know, you should always be honest, you should never lie or, or some sort of abstract dictum like that. She told me stories about from family lore, from, from history, from stories that she had read about that illustrated these points, you know, rather than saying it's important to be brave, she told me a story about somebody acting brave and allow me to experience. And then I think that's actually a very important way in which we learn values. I, I, I think that's probably true for all of us. When we think about what it means to be X, where X is some virtue, we don't really think about it or understand or feel it as a set of abstract definitions for some word. We have a proto typical story in our heads of what that means. So for example, you know, as lawyers, we were, you know, one of the most important qualities we have is this zealous advocacy of our client. But I think a lot of us as lawyers don't really understand that value in terms of rules of ethics or the detailed definitions that state regulatory authorities promulgate. Rather, we have this, at least for me, in my head, the vision of John Adams defending uh, those who committed uh, the Boston Massacre. And that is the story that embodies that value of defending those who, defending those who are hated uh, in order for the system to be just. That the idea that you zealously go and defend folks who are otherwise pariahs of society, and you do this not out of some abstract notion of honor, but of a very specific, deeply felt passion for maintaining the justice of the system so that every outcome of the system can be trusted. Uh, I, I think you don't, you know, a lot of us don't understand these virtues even abstractly. We understand it through some story, some hero, some mythological figure, some family figure, what have you, that illustrates, that embodies that value for us. And, and you know, to me, that was something that, that mattered a lot to me, that that was the way my grandmother uh, and my grandfather tried to teach me. And I, I, I think in, in Okay, and you need this deep belief in the power of stories and their importance that that if you have the empowering story, then you can live an empowered life. Uh, and if you're told a disempowering story, then it is very hard to fight against it. Uh, and, and so if that is the case, then we need to tell all the empowering stories that we can. I think that's a great note to end on. Definitely check out The Hidden Girl. It's going to be out by the time you listen to this. And do you have any book events that you wanted to plug? I will be doing uh, a bunch of events in um, Boston, New York, and D.C. Uh, in March related to the uh, to the release of uh, The Hidden Girl and other stories. And if anybody's interested, they can come to my website to see the detailed list of events. And my website is kenliu.name, dot N-A-N-E. Great. And anything else that you wanted to add for uh, non-Hidden Girl works that are coming out? Right. So um, my big... I think you do a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So my my big... um, I've spent the last decade, actually, uh, working on one series of novels called The the Dentland Dynasty. Um, It's a soap punk epic fantasy series, um, which probably means nothing to you uh, because the term is one that I made up myself. What it 
practically means is these are fantasy novels in which there's no magic but a lot of technology. And the reason they're called soap punk is because I wanted to basically explore all the things I've been talking about: post-colonialism, and the importance of storytelling,、um, how engineering is like poetry, and these are stories in which the the most important magic users, if you will, are not wizards but engineers, and they're about constitutionalism and how the way you organize a society is not about having the perfect institutions, but about having the right stories. And I've been working on these for a Decade and finally the conclusion of the series.、Uh, so the first two books are the Grace of Kings and the Wall of Storms, and the conclusion of the series is finally close to being done. I mean, I have I have a draft. It's、uh, with my editor, and hopefully、uh, it will be out soon. And that's my、uh, that's the other thing too for readers who are interested in my work to keep an eye out for.、Mm, the G R R Martin soon or the real soon? Ah, <laughs> that's, I, I love it. That's a, that's a great question. Real soon.、Uh, I mean, you know, I actually have a draft, and it's with my editor. So there will be edits to be done, but it is actually finished. So it's not in some amorphous, to be finished <laughs> state. It actually is finished. Awesome. So yeah, we'll definitely check that out. And for me, I have to finish reading the last four or so stories in this collection. <laughs> so thank you so much for the coffee as well.、Um, yeah, and that's about it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Eugene. It's a real pleasure talking to you. So much for listening to the very first official episode of the Biden Family's podcast. If you're interested in tuning into more episodes, feel free to follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast, where we'll also be posting a list of book events for Ken Liu, and I'll actually be planning to attend the book talk at Politics and Pose Bookstore in DC on March 9th. Also, if you're interested on watching an adaptation of one of Ken Liu's stories, you can do so on Netflix. There's a short 15-minute video called "Good Hunting," which is part of a series called "Love, Death, and Robots." It's I just watched it and found it really haunting, so I would highly recommend. Finally, special shout out to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music, and see you next time. <laughs>